When Saturday comes, it's a new Doctor Who, but the trailers are worryingly monster-free. Even though the story seems to be set on Pluto, at that time young Ben's favourite planet, how could a story succeed with no monsters? And with that annoying robot dog, too. It was with trepidation that as the football scores faded away, that Ben turned to watch Doctor Who. This is a flashback Metabulous 2 podcast on The Sunmakers. Welcome, everybody, to the 59th episode of the Metabolus 2 podcast. I am your host, Ben. And I am your other host, David. And this week, as you probably gathered by the intro, we will be discussing the Doctor Who serial, The Sunmakers. Yeah. Yeah. So this uh, was first broadcast in late November, episode one of 1977. Exactly. I don't actually remember this very clearly, The Mm -hmm. Sunmakers. There's a couple of things I do remember about it. One, I was really disappointed by the lack of monsters. Right. Even at the age of 12, which seems quite old, but there you go. Uh, (laughs) Well, that was one of the reasons to watch Doctor Who was for the fabulous monsters. Yeah, uh, monsters were the thing. And it's the reason why I didn't really like any other sci-fi, like Star Trek, Mm -hmm. etc. Because they didn't have monsters in it. And monsters really were the reason to watch Doctor Who. Um, I felt, I think, and then this is rewinding myself back to my original self, um, I felt this was all a bit monochrome. Um, I really appreciate the set design now, um, and I really appreciate the direction now. Um, I didn't really appreciate it at the time, and I certainly I, I felt the first episode, you know, when they're on the roof of the, what is actually the tobacco, is it the, it's the tobacco factory. Yeah, in, Will's Tobacco Factory. In, um, in, uh, Hartcliffe, Bristol. In, in, in Bristol, which is now actually a big art center um uh, art, mm-hmm. art, art studio place um i felt that looked gray and boring and didn't look didn't look out i was really excited it looked cheap it looked, it looked cheap i was really really excited that it was going to be set on pluto because I'm, I'm not joking pluto was literally my favorite planet at that time <laughs> um i've got a different favorite planet now but certainly at that time uh, pluto <laughs> was just the coolest thing i was really intrigued that no one knew anything about pluto it seemed all super mysterious it was like it was the right. last planet um, except so, so I was excited so I was hoping it was going to be it would look colder for instance I mean mm-hmm. it looked quite cold because um, it was because it, uh, it was Britain in where, where, how, whatever date mm-hmm. they, they shot it yeah Louise Jamison said it was freezing <laughs> and uh, you know it's supposed to be this bright six suns of the uh, surrounding Pluto right. but Louise says it was freezing and it looked all misty and cold. Yeah, yeah. So again, I, I guess it probably was cold enough to be, to, to be Pluto. But anyway, <laughs> I was disappointed that it wasn't Pluto enough. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny, actually. I'm thinking about and watching that this, this week. Obviously, the presence of Michael Keating um, is a... Oh, you know, obviously he went on to play Villa, who has actually was my favorite character in, um, in Blake 7. Of course, this is before yeah. Blake 7. But actually looking back at this and thinking more about it, this, this, this 
uh, Sunmakers was very much a precursor to me for Blake 7. You know, it's an oppressive, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, there's a resistance, an oppressive regime, blah, blah, blah. There aren't really any monsters. It's still set in yeah. space. People wear mm-hmm. kind of, you know, ridiculous costumes. However, um, it did grow on me over time. Um, as, so as I, as, I, as I carried on watching it, um, the gunplay was, was good. I liked the evil guards. Um, Henry Wolf. I found uh, R- Richard Leach's performance as Gatherer Hayde to be irritating, but then he's supposed to be mm-hmm. irritating. Again, mm-hmm. the satire w- really went over my head, and I think it probably went over the head of every child who was watching it. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think it's. I think now, as one watches it, you know, the satire is pretty amusing and entertaining, and certainly Richard Leach's performance as Gatherer Hayde is part of that satire. But at the time, I found like, why is he being so bombastic and shouty, and you know. Uh, formal in his address that that doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense to me um i love i i love now and i love then i loved henry wolf's performance as the collector um i thought mm-hmm. that was super uh super scary but what really clinched it for me uh as a uh, as a as a piece of drama was uh, which is obviously you know our extensive reason for watching this is to talk about Leela uh, and you know Leela ends up um, uh, you know being a kind of you know Jane figure um, a damsel in distress and um, what really clinched it for me was the steaming um, which right. I just found to be the most horrific um, way of killing someone possible um, uh, this may not be sim- this may not be the same in American kitchens but of course in British kitchens you spend a lot of time making cups of tea um, which means you spend a lot of time boiling water which means as a child you spend a lot of your lot, lots of lots of time being burnt by steam um, so I had a very good idea of what it might be like to be steamed to death um, yeah. and that scalded really really freaked me out it kind of still freaks me out today and so I was very pleased that Leela got rescued from that oh yeah absolutely um, so those are my initial <laughs> impressions of um, of the Sunmakers age 12 so there you go yeah. how about you I think the thing that I really liked about it was K9 was starting to see some action in it. He was better, yeah. The story was pretty dull. I, I, I like this story a lot better as a person in my middle ages yep. than yep. I did as a young boy yep. age 12 watching this. It was boring. The sets were flat yep. and lifeless. Uh, <laughs> interesting that... This is Louise Jameson's favorite story of all her time in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't always play the strongest of character, and she is totally the victim, like you said, damsel in distress at the end of episode three, the cliffhanger, where she's about to be scalded to death by the steam. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really mixed bag. It uh, looks like it was done on the cheap, and it's a lot more violent and... Uh, than the Graham Williams era has the reputation for being. It's super and, violent, I think. It's really violent. <laughs> well, the gatherer is tossed off the side of the <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> building. And everyone goes, yay, he's being thrown right. to his death. It's like, oh, okay. Not a lot of introspection or remorse or what have we just done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, no, it's it's violent and it's kind of cynical and um, uh, it's really dark. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, yes. yeah, it's a really dark tale. I think this really is a sign of what the Williams era is. It's bleak. And there's, despite the humor, despite the the shiny colors that kind of come through with the gatherers, 
uh, outfit and mm-hmm. you know the the Sunmaker logo that you have that look to it that is kind of a hallmark of the Williams era. The bleakness that is, I think, very characteristic of late 70s Doctor Who that's emblematic of the Graham Williams era really shines through. This is a dark, bleak piece. Yeah, I mean, let's just, let's just quickly talk about the set design, which which is, it's as, I, as, I, as I've read about this, that, that again, they, were, they had to completely cut back on sets. Yeah. Um, the money thing was really pinching at this point. Well, the designer, uh, Tony Snowden, wanted to do this whole Aztec or Mayan type motif of the sun gods. Yep. And it shows a little bit in the beginning where you have that big kind of Aztec symbol and then the, the symbol on everyone's costumes. But that's about it. I actually think that that, that made it super effective. Um, I, I actually think that a kind of maximalist design here mm-hmm. would have been problematic because I don't think even with uh, Wang Chiang levels of money, they probably couldn't have pulled it off um, uh, effectively. And actually, I think the the kind of sparseness of the sets kind of fits with the sparseness of the of the society. You know, this is very much a right. 1984. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a privatized 19, 1984. It's a you know, it's praise the company um, mm-hmm. rather than Big <laughs> Brother. Um, it has an austerity to it and a kind of a non-functionality to it, which is very 1984. Right. And I think, you know, just the single uses of that, you know, that big Aztec Sunmaker emblem is really super effective. And it kind of speaks to, you know, the parsimony of the company in general, um, uh, that, you know, the company does not like to spend money, like it likes right. to collect money, um, that everything mm-hmm. is a bit grim and grey and sort of sort of barely realised. Mm-hmm. And that actually works really well for me. I like that. I mean, as a, as a, as a contemporary viewer at the time, I, I, I didn't like it at all. I, think, I, thought, I thought it did look grey and I thought it did look boring and it wasn't nearly exciting enough. But certainly, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as an adult watching this, I think actually the, the, the set design works really well and I'm glad they didn't have so much money to spend on it. The sets are very stagey. Yes. They're, they're very theatrical, um, most notably the Undercity set where it really seems like a, it would be a contemporary uh, theater set. A black box theater, yeah, with some, alter- yeah. With some alternative theater going on, yes. And I think even the actors in that set become very stagey, very theatrical. And it reminds me of like a stage, a stage play of like a hard times or something. Right, like that. right, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, and of course, ironically, to again, to whiplash to, um, is this ironically? I don't know. Henry Wolf, um, he, was a, he was a big stage actor and did a lot of work with um, mm-hmm. Harold Pinter, um, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera, I, as I understand. It's really hard to separate my adult perspective from my child perspective because this is one of the ones that I think have has improved with watching over the years. So my yep. it started out so low yep. when I was twelve, and <laughs> thirty years later, it's a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, and it, all, you know, all the things that kind of irritate a a twelve year old, such as set design, or and actually this still kind of vaguely irritates me today. But I mean, I can get over it because I know it's not real. Um, you know how the laser blasts from 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 um, canine's <laughs> nose laser have no relevance to where they start or where they hit. They're just kind of randomly placed on the screen, right. and the guards' kind of car that they ride around in is like, okay, well that's mm-hmm. not a super effective car at all. Um, and you know the the false cliffhanger that they have, which I guess. Probably, I already have only noticed having watched it on DVD, but I'm pretty sure 
I thought it was going to be better at the time and it ends up not being a cliffhanger at all. Um, I mean, all of those things that, you know, and the bombastic acting style of Gather a Hade, etc., mm-hmm. etc., all those those things that irritate you as a child actually become immensely entertaining as as an adult. Yeah, as of today, I love Richard Leach's performance as Gatherer yes. Aid. He, Fantastic. He's my favorite part of the whole the whole program. Yeah. I mean, well, actually, but, but, but still, my, my absolute favorite is is The Collector. Oh, Henry Wolf. Um, and Henry Wolf. But, I mean, and they, uh, there's just not enough of him. I, I'd be happy to have him on the whole time. And I'm really sorry that the Usurians have never really... Um, uh, never really returned because mm-hmm. I think he's amazing. And actually, as we go through the rest of this season, um, and we look at Underworld, and we look at um, Invasion of Time, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably be saying the same thing next week. You know, I didn't like either of those at the time, and I actually now really, really enjoyed them as, mm-hmm. as an adult. So I'm not quite sure what that means, but you know, I think there's 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 a lot to enjoy for these as a you know as a thoughtful adult person rather than as like an entertainment hungry child. I want to touch back to Michael Keating and Blake Seven. Yeah. And this story really, I think, would fit within the Blake Seven universe if you absolutely minus out the Doctor and the Usarians. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a complete Blake Seven story. Um, you know, the character he plays is kind of like Villa anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm... I mean, I don't know this, but I'm certain that this is why he got cast in Blake 7. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Pennant Roberts directed the second and fourth or fifth story of Blake 7. And uh, right. he recommended uh, Keating to the producer as Vila. Yeah. Vila, yeah. Um, do we need to explain to our listener what, what Blake 7 is? Or are we assuming. Certainly we... to our American listener, probably. Yeah, so American listener, listen carefully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Blake 7. Blake Seven. When did Blake Seven start? Seventy eight. Yep. Was it? January of seventy eight. January seventy eight was was uh, the BBC's other sci fi show. Uh, it ran for five seasons, or is it four seasons? Yeah, five four, se- I think. Four seasons. It also suffered from having really probably less money being spent on it than Doctor Who. Um, it had famous special effects that were basically just pictures of spaceships being moved around, i.e. two-dimensional mm-hmm. things just being moved around to give the impression of spaceships mo- moving about. It was created right. it was created by Terry Nation. Um, Produced by David Maloney, another Doctor Who alum. Written by Chris Boucher, amongst others. Mm-hmm. Uh, has people called Tarrant in it, of course, um, and being, <laughs> um, being written by Terry Nation. And it's absolutely amazingly awesome and well worth watching. It's got a lot of Doctor Who actors in it. Um, at one point, I think Nation had thought that the Daleks would be in it at, at at one point I have I read. think he was going to try to do that yeah, but um, it just wouldn't have fit just, I thought I, I, I still am waiting to have the Daleks turn up in Blake's so I think that I think that that would be great it famously I think if you carry on go ahead uh, well no I, I think it famously um, kind of misdirects its audience by not by I think uh, by after the uh, is it the first season or the second season I haven't seen it seen it for such a long time um, Blake is no longer in it the Blake Seven mm-hmm. is like the, the, there are like a seven member resistance group who kind of who right. fight against the evil federation um, uh, but he's not in it for most of the time and they have to look <laughs> for him because Gareth Thomas the actor didn't want to do it anymore right. it's, it's just really really fun and great and there's some mm-hmm. great performances it can be super camp but also super grim and gritty and um, mm-hmm. uh, actually thinking about it when I was watching the Sun- Sunmakers I really need to splash out and not that I can splash out or I should because it's all money um, I really, <laughs> really need to watch Blake 7 again is it, is, is it on Britbox can you watch Blake 7 what's, what's the best what's the best way to watch 
Like, I so. don't know. I don't know. In the U.S., you have to import yeah. the DVDs from yeah. the U.K. It's it's never been released or hasn't been released on DVD or well, I doubt they would release it on Blu-ray since it wasn't yeah. recorded on film. But there's a um, it's not available in North America easily. There's a Dutch box set that seems to be the cheapest way of getting hold of it. Um, I'm a little <laughs> bit wary of buying that in case it happens to be all in Dutch. Um, but I assume it's probably just subtitles and you can turn the subtitles off. Um, but yeah, no, it's, no, they're it's, burned in. <laughs> they're burned in. Yes, they scraped them onto the negative um, forever. Uh, but yeah, it's what, what what I have seen of it um, uh, after the first time I watched it. Very, very, uh, you know, it's just a great show. Um, mm-hmm. Got a lot. It's great piece of British sci-fi, and I can sincerely recommend it. I can actually remember lo- loving it at the time because at that time I was going very much going through an anti-Star Trek phase. Right. And I loved the idea that the Federation in Star Trek was like good and wonderful, um, but the Federation in um, <laughs> in Blake Seven was totally evil and mm-hmm. was run by the evil Servalan, um, mm-hmm. who's the incredibly sexually attractive, um, what's her name out of the Hammer movies, um, Jacqueline Pierce. Um, with her evil hench person, Travis. Not Mackenzie. Uh... Not Mackenzie Crook, as in Blake's <laughs> did, did you watch that? Yeah, <laughs> Isn't yes. it great? Oh, my yes. God, I love that. Oh, tell tell the. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, anyway, and, and, and if you if you do watch Blake Seven, also watch um, something called Blake's Junction Seven, <laughs> which is a very very affectionate and completely um, accurate spoof of the show that was produced only about ten years ago, um, where the Blake Seven crew end up at like a motorway service station um, um, on the um, you know on the M1 or something, and um, it's basically it's a bunch of British alternative comedians like Mackenzie mm-hmm. Crook and, and Martin mm-hmm. Freeman um, just pretending to be characters from Blake Seven, and Mackenzie Crook is Serverland, so he's in, he's in he's in drag, um, right. but he he plays the part beautifully he's, mm-hmm. he's an amazing server land yeah, um, yeah. you can find that on youtube yeah that is on youtube and of course orac their mighty computer played by the wonderful peter tudnam is the main character mm-hmm. i'll have a brown eel um <laughs> it's great it's honest but yeah but blake seven and we mm-hmm. I, I, my my plan actually when we finally stop doing the metabolis 2 podcast we should start <laughs> just start doing the blake seven to the blake's two podcast and just go through blake seven <laughs> Episode by episode, I'd love to do that. Anyway, Blake, Blake Seven. Seven rewatch, yeah. But hang on, so I mean, did, did, did you? Did, how did you get to watch Blake Seven then in the states? Blake Seven was on after Doctor Who, um, in the late. Oh, and Brian 80s. Blessed's in it as well from time yes. to time. And sorry. well, and uh, Colin Baker is Colin in it. Baker. And... Anyway, but sorry, <laughs> I, a I, lot, I, of, I lot of crossovers. So. Yeah. KTCA in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the public broadcaster, right. would move Doctor Who to uh, evenings, Friday Friday and Saturday evenings in 1984, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And I would have been 15 at the time. And so I would manage to finagle my way to stay up that late okay. during freshman year of high school or whatnot. And then they would have like either... They would lead in with a half hour, an hour of Britcom, then they would run Doctor Who, and then after Doctor Who had concluded, if it was just an hour and 20 minutes, a four-parter, they would run an episode of either Blake Seven, The Prisoner, Danger Man, SCTV, which I guess is a Canadian show, but they would always run something after Doctor Who, so if I was awake enough, I would watch Blake Seven, and 
Blake Seven really had that Doctor Who feel to it. So, so did. Um, did they run it in order then, from like episode one to episode the last episode of it, or was I, did they I kind believe, of dot around? No, I believe they ran it through in some order. Certainly, you know, I didn't get the full run the first time because I right. was either you know I'd fade in or fade out, right, or, right, because I was being tired. But um, yeah, they ran it more or less in order. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good show. It was a good show. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can, st- I can, you know, I can still hum the um, the theme tune quite effectively. <laughs> and I got a little diecast. Li- they, they, they had this. They um, traveled around this amazing spaceship called the Liberator until it was destroyed, and then they had like a crap spacecraft that I hated for the final series. Um, and I've still got a little diecast model of this Liberator lying around somewhere. Um, was that contemporary? Or is that a more modern toy? Yeah, it was. I mean, they 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 were trying to to kind of push like Blake Seven toys for a while. Um, well, I'm sure because that's right after Star Wars in the '77, yeah. so Someone they would they can make money. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, again, you know, at school, um, uh, we would play Blake Seven. Um, when we weren't playing Doctor Who, we would play Blake mm-hmm. Seven down and safe. Um, we kind of we'd kind of jump in the air and then like fall to the ground and that <laughs> which is how they did the kind of transporter effect on Blake right. Seven. it's incredibly amazing um and then um yeah then battles you know and, and someone would always have to be serverland which is always always a, a problem because serverland's a woman and i was mm-hmm. it was a, i was at an all-boys school it's like oh i don't want to be the serverland eh, it's a girl anyway um, so i was thinking yeah i was thinking just you know you had mentioned that nation had wanted the daleks to at one time appear in Blake Seven. Yeah. And I could see Serverland kind of playing a Mavic Chang Yeah. Mavic Chen type role with the Daleks. Yeah. Well I think I mean what I read, I mean there's I think it's the end of season two, um, the episode Star One, um, where the Blake Seven team, the Resistance team, they they kind of attack and destroy the the federation's main kind of you know control center um mm-hmm. kind of paraphrasing badly and then there's like an invasion from another galaxy um mm-hmm. uh, from yeah andromeda galaxy or something and apparently originally that was going to be the daleks uh-huh. um uh, so that that kind of you know immense invasion from another galaxy completely Mm-hmm. would turn out to be Daleks. And you're right, it probably it would have... Uh, to introduce something as strong as the Daleks, especially something which has had such a... already had such a long history, I think probably would have been a mistake. It just would have been amazing to just have, like, you know, suddenly you zoom in and it's the bridge of a, you know, of a Dalek a Dalek mm-hmm. spacecraft with that kind of bump-bump kind of sound. Would, would have been amazing. Right. I think if you had done that, you definitely would have had to have a crossover cameo from Tom, Tom Baker as the Doctor somewhere. Yeah, in yeah. and then, then it all starts to be... Starts to be get very very complicated. Anyway, should we should we perhaps return to the Sunmakers? Back to Pluto. Back to Pluto. Yeah, yeah. But Blake's have definitely recommend it. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, did you remember that opening scene? The very opening scene mm-hmm. when Citizen Cordo is waiting for news of his father's death. Right. And right. a woman appears. Is that supposed to be a television monitor, or is that supposed to be a hole in the wall? I just, it's very weird. <laughs> That is a weird bit. Um, I've always taken it to be like a, a like a low budget television monitor of mm. some kind, like a three D thing. I was thinking it could be like a window at a post office type thing. Oh, I or... guess so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, again, I mean, the satire here is so kind of relatively adult that I certainly at the time that wouldn't have registered with me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of vaguely similar to, um, uh, you know, I would have actually compared it to, you know, that little face that appears at the door. In the Wizard of Oz, oh right, yeah. So in the Emerald City is that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Like the speakeasy door. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's just a way of, of you know, I mean, the whole the whole show, the whole story is basically Bob Holmes writing a story about how he didn't like paying taxes. It's um, it's the taxes and how he didn't like the BBC. I mean, I think Louise Jemison says this in one of the commentaries or one of the uh, Doctor Who magazine articles that Bob said the company was the BBC. Right, right, right. So, you know, it's very late 70s British um, bureaucracy, which, mm-hmm. you're, excuse me, I mean, essentially before, well, I mean, I think Britain uh, throughout the 70s was a mm-hmm. kind of quasi-socialist country. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, you know, we had a couple of socialist governments and then a really pretty couple of very ineffective conservative governments. Um, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of bureaucracy. Um, mm-hmm. And actually people my age sort of wish there was more of that kind of bureaucracy <laughs> back again, because things actually tended to work slightly better as, as, as far as I remember, or maybe I was mm-hmm. just a child, so I didn't notice things um, working better. But there was a lot of bureaucracy. There were a lot of people, holes in the wall and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, official people who wouldn't let you do something for no readily apparent reason. Um, I think obviously Bob Holmes was now a freelance. Right. So probably was surprised that he then had to pay like a huge amount of tax. He mm-hmm. wasn't doing PAYE anymore. Um, in, the, in the British tax system, unlike the American tax system, if you work for an organization, if you work for a company, the taxes are automatically done for you. Right. Um, so okay. taxes, taxes come out of your paycheck automatically. Um, you don't have to do your taxes as hmm. all Americans have to do. And as an American now, I, I understand why you all hate taxes so much because <laughs> doing, doing your taxes every springtime is just a horrific, horrific thing to do. Um, in general, in Britain, you don't have to do your taxes. It gets done hmm. for you um, unless, of course, you don't work for anybody, unless, of course, you own a company, in which case you have to do the taxes, um, but then you have an accountant to do it for you. Or if you're a freelance, you have to do your own taxes. And I think right. the, the surprise um, or the horror of Bob Holmes <laughs> coming out of the BBC and then like, hang on, I have to do my own taxes now. Ah! Mm-hmm. Um, right. Really... Well, my paycheck, what I thought I was getting is significantly less. Now. Exactly. Here's my paycheck. But you know what? Now I have to hand a proportion of that over to the government based on my own calculations rather than that calculation being done by my employer. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, part of it is that. And part of it is, you know, is being a freelance person and working for the BBC. I'm sure that was nightmarish. I mean, you know, the BBC is, I think, just as bureaucratic nowadays as it used to be. Um, But I think, you know, back then it was a kind of a socialist bureaucracy. Um, I think nowadays the BBC is a, you know, a ridiculous capitalist bureaucracy instead, still very, (laughs) but still very, very bureaucratic. A lot of, a lot of middle managers, a lot of forms to fill in, a lot of weird rules that you have to follow whether you like it or not. Process heavy. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think it all fits in with that whole, you know, the whole stories you get of the 1970s, especially Doctor Who, hyperinflation, but uh, but also, you know, with the BBC and, you know, having to stop work, you know, when the Mm. the electricians would just turn off the lights um, and everyone would have to go home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, as you you point out, you know, the early 70s were a time when, you know, the kind of 74, 73, 74, 75 or so, the country was in really really poor shape um, financially with hyperinflation um, that would come uh, would happen again towards the end of the 70s you know the 70s were a bad time economically and that um, I think also makes things more bureaucratic mm-hmm. well that's probably why uh, Bob Holmes entered has like the little zings in there like well the doctor says uh, uh, right at the beginning why Cordell wants to commit suicide is he can't make ends meet and yeah. then he adds probably too many economists from the government 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and then Lila's Lila goes, uh, these taxes, are they like sacrifices to tribal gods? And the doctor, obviously channeling Bob Holmes here, is saying, well, roughly speaking, but paying tax is more painful. It's more painful. <laughs> and there's lots of little, I mean, there's the, mm-hmm. uh, where is it? I mean, the, the guard of the collector is called the internal retinue. Um, uh, the uh, inner, yeah, inner retinue. So, sorry, in the, when, in, in the inner retinue, and of course, the tax gathering um, uh, uh, organization of Great Britain is called the Internal Revenue. Um, that's just one. There's the P, whatever it is, the P, P45. The P45, which is the form you get when you're made unemployed. Um, I was going to say P7E there, but that's actually that's, <laughs> that's actually coming next, up. Coming that's, up. <laughs> that's, that's that's next week. Um, so there's a lot of little little yeah. things in here about about paying taxes. Yeah, the, like you know, what do you have to lose? Only yeah. your claims, t- stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is really Doctor Who for adults, I would think, more than the kids. Kind There's really not much in here other than what you said that was a steaming. I mean, there's a few laser battles, but not really that. They're not very it's, good. It's really canine. The guard, the guns are cardboard. They're, and they're really clunky. made of cardboard and they're, they're clunky. Yeah, that's, I mean, even nowadays, I find those guns to be just a little bit, they're kind of taking the piss, really, at that point in, in gun design. Everything is supersized, sort of like with the Barclays yeah. card there. It's 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 enormous. Yeah. I mean, it's very kind of happiness patrol, basically. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, I you can know, see that. Yeah, you know, where the satire is. The satire is pretty broad um, and not very satisfying to children. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I actually find Sunmakers a lot more satisfying than I find the Happiness Patrol, which I think because I'm, I'm not a big fan of late '80s Who in mm-hmm. general. But yeah, it's you know it's 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 this is this is pretty broad stroke satire. Um, whereas Happiness Patrol is you know satirizing the right wing government of um, Margaret Thatcher. Sunmakers is satirizing the left wing government of Jim Callahan. Did you pick up as a kid on the Dennis Healy eyebrows on The Collector? Um, you know, I didn't. I mean, Dennis Healy was a big character in the 70s. Um, there was mm-hmm. a famous impressionist on the television called Mike Yarwood who used to do a Dennis Healy impression that we always, with again, we used to do to each other at school. <laughs> You're a silly Billy. And he, we used to fluff up our eyebrows and pretend to be Dennis Healy because he, he was just a very distinctive looking person. And he yes. was on the telly all the time because the country was in such crap and financially that the chancellor of the exchequer who is basically you know the finance minister i don't think you have one do you have one in america treasurer treasury secretary the treasury secretary exactly um of the country um uh, you know so he was on the telly all the time like telling us that it was going better than it we actually than it actually was i didn't actually make that connection at all i think maybe if they'd given him bushier eyebrows mm-hmm. and had him in a suit and had him played by Mike, Mike Yarwood, I might have got it. Um, <laughs> but again, I, I'm afraid it was too subtle for me at the time. Which is the hallmark of this program, or Bob Holmes' writing. This yeah. the satire is very subtle. It is, and, and it's the thing. It's subtle. It's subtle in the kind of wrong ways. I mean, you know, no kid is going to get the difference between internal revenue and um, uh, the 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 inland revenue and the internal retinue. No one's going to get PCM gas being per calendar month gas. Uh-huh. Um, you know, no one's going to get these jokes. Um, who's a kid? Right. And yeah. Another example is when the gatherer hands the doctor a raspberry leaf and the doctor says rubus ideas, which is Latin for it. And the head goes, no, raspberry leaves. You know, that's the type of thing that you would learn much later in school rather than as a 12 year old. And I'm wondering, I mean, who's who, who, who's script editing this? Uh, I think. Is it Williams? 
Is he? Just, no, it's Anthony Reed. Oh, it's Reed. Been, I'm sorry. Who had been a Reed. script editor, right? And but he probably did a very light touch because this is the first commission Bob Holmes, yeah. right after Bob Holm leaves the script editing role. Yeah. So I would imagine both sort of script edited it together. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think you know what one might expect usually with this kind of you know satirical piece is the script editor would go through and go, okay, we know like, the kid's really going to get that, Bob. Okay, can we change it? Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I've you know given that you know Bob Holmes used to be the script script editor given that this is his first commission and given that obviously reed is in some way junior to him that obviously didn't happen right yeah and the the doctor's candy or misidentification of candy agenda seems to (laughs) carry through the story uh you know he offers gatherer hag a humbug because i guess gatherer hay looks like a humbug but those are obviously jelly babies that he offers and then there's some kind of a white flat candy that he calls a jelly baby, and it's no it's, good. Uh, it's, it's it's no good, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you why there's none. I think it, you know even even as a, and well especially as a child, and and this is what thing that kind of triggered this memory watching it. I knew what I absolutely knew what a humbug was at the time, and all kids would have known what a, what a humbug was. And the doctor is offering quite plainly offering the, offering the gatherer something that isn't a humbug. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a humbug is a very, very distinctive kind of candy. Google it, kids, and you'll see what one looks like. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that that could be... Uh, yeah, that's that's just... That's that's poor art direction, and at the time irritated me, and I think it irritates me a bit now. Well, do you think do you think it was uh, more of a subtle dig that the gatherer looks like a humbug I with guess, his turban? I guess so. I think it would have been just effective, just as effective. They just gone out and bought a bag of humbugs. I mean, you know, you can get them at the same right. store that you get jelly babies from. <laughs> it's not difficult. Um, uh, right. And of course, you know, I mean, humbug is a again. I don't know whether that's true. What do you know? All Americans love um, a Christmas Carol. Humbug. Bah. Is a is a is as well as a candy is also is is also a what you call nonsense. So you know there's a there's right. another piece of kind of satire there as well. Bar humbug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also I think this is the first time that in the script the doctor is explicitly uh, referenced as doctor. Oh really? <laughs> because the gatherer uh, mistakes his name as an Ajax as Doc. Ah, right. Doctor. Yes. Doctor, which uh, David Williams and... uh, Yes, uh, was it the caves of something? The planet of... The riddle of the the planet of caves? I can't remember what what that skit is called. (laughs) It's super funny. Yes, but that, yeah. Yeah. With uh, Mark Gatiss playing... Playing the the Pertwee... Doctor. Pertwee-esque. Doctor. (laughs) Doctor. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah mm-hmm. so what do you think of leela's role or louise jameson's portrayal as leela in this um, i mean i liked i like her kind of team up with 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 k9 that kind of worked well for me mm-hmm. is that she's you know that that actually k9 is becoming you know they're becoming a team mm-hmm. which is actually one of the really things one of the things that has continues to rankle a little bit with me about doctor who in general is that for me then and i think still for me now that the 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 the, the team or the companion of k9 is leela mm-hmm. i really have never understood why uh, sarah jane has become the companion right. of k9 and i i know why right. um uh, but that really doesn't fit for me is that is that and, and to mm-hmm. me the kind of prissiness and pedantry of k9 fits very well in his kind of you know effeminate maleness um, fits very well with the character of Leela, and I think they work really, right. really well together as as a team. They work so much better than I think 
that it, it does with Sarah Jane and so much uh, mm-hmm. so much better as well than than K9 works with Tom Baker um and and also with Romana as well because of course you know K9 right. go and ends up going off with um Romana into into East Space or wherever the hell they go can't remember where it is now mm-hmm. um but yeah and I, I, they, they make a great couple and I think it works very well mm-hmm. um I I think she's a little bit lost in this um I mean she, she's hot and cold in it <laughs> I mean, she's she's very warm. She she switches her character switches so quickly between being very sweet and warm to like Cordo, right. but then switches off immediately with the other in the understudy. And of course, they're in a threatening situation, but she'll she threatens, "I'll split you," right. and you know, it's, it's 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 obviously in a more hostile environment. But Louise Jamison really can bring it or dial it back really almost at a flip of a switch yeah, yeah. she's she, she's a very good actor is what she is oh um, yes, yes and um and it's not necessarily always the case that very good actors get to be on doctor who though actually mm-hmm. more than you'd think um mm-hmm. and um as i said i mean i think i think i think the leela here is I think it's a little bit underwritten. I think we could have gone with one Leela or with another Leela, and we kind of went with a kind of a, a, a kind of a bisected Leela of some kind. Um, and I don't, I, I don't like now, and I didn't like then the fact that she was captured and steamed. Um, that isn't that isn't what happens to Leela. No, she doesn't need rescuing. She's just left, and just the whole scene of that long corridor with the guards. Why they? It just doesn't make sense other than for the sake of the story that she has to fall off the slow moving electric vehicle. Why the guards can't shoot straight until they do shoot straight. Yeah. It's it's only there to service. The plot of Leela becoming the victim, so the Doctor can rescue her. I mean, they do have other characters that they could have had, you know, captured and you know, sentenced to death. Um, you know, we could have had a minor character could have, which then you know, the Doctor and Leela could have rescued. I think that would have worked well. And actually, you know, I mean, obviously, in all sci-fi shows, you know, the villains' laser weapons really don't function that well. Um, you know, right. and from, well, from, Star, from Wars. Star Wars being the being, I think, the main case in point. That really only works effectively if you have a lot of money to spend on special effects, so it doesn't really show that much. Um, but with Doctor right. Who, really, you know, the company soldiers are really kind of pathetic. Um, and uh, the, the problem with, of course, with, with with laser beams is that it's always really obvious mm-hmm. that they're not hitting. If you have like an, you know, if you have a, 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 a you know, a, 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 a a weapon, a gun that fires, that projectile fires a projectile weapon. weapon. That's what I'm trying to say. Projectile weapon. You you can make like a kind of a gun sound, and like you know, mm-hmm. it's easier to kind of pretend that they're missing. Anyway, so yeah, right. It really doesn't work that well. Sorry. Yeah, um, Bob Holmes split up her and Tom Baker, uh, Jameson and Tom Baker, because they weren't getting along on the set. So that's why they spend two or three episodes apart from each other so yeah. much. And it's just kind of to ease Louise's time on the set, just to be away from tom's demagoguery i guess yeah yeah i think he was big i think he was he was getting worse and worse wasn't he Mm -hmm. um at this point yeah well this is filmed rather early on i think this is uh i can't remember precisely but it was filmed not in broadcast order so this is earlier in oh really okay so he was still he was still kind of really pissed off with having louise yeah this was filmed earlier than it was broadcast it was out of broadcast order um because uh they wanted to mix up the story so we wouldn't have like the invisible enemy and the sun makers back to back right right I and see. Okay. I, I mean it, it does show some of the the traits of bob holmes with the women driver joke um <laughs> which is not 
necessary at all. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Yeah, it's not necessary. <laughs> but it's completely, it's like, it's completely, you know, mid-1970s male. I mean, my dad used to go on about women drivers, mm-hmm. you know. I was like, <laughs> even at the time, I remember thinking to myself, like, how could that even be a thing? Like, why would mm-hmm. women not be as good as driving as men are? But right. for, for, I think for men of a certain age, that's still a thing, basically. And- Robert Holmes is a man of a certain age in 1977. A man of a certain age. Like, why are women driving? They're obviously bad at it. Uh. (laughs) And Bob Holmes' humor is a lot like the Douglas Adams' humor coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, I think, the first really heavy satirical satire or sarcastic type humor that we see more and more in the Williams era with the doctor saying your guards were entirely charming and so attentive. Yeah, yeah. But I think I find it the humor is a lot darker than than Adam's humor. I mean, Adam's Mm, humor is is kind of lighter um, because, you know, he's a younger man. um, Mm -hmm. uh, But, you know, the the, the Holmes humor at this point is really kind of... And and you'll see it in, you know, when he he carries on writing for the show and you'll see it in in, um, Rebus Operation... Um, and you'll see it spectacularly fail, actually, in in the two doctors. Um, it's it's really it's really kind of dark and horrible and kind of almost sort of miserable, miserable sarcastic humor rather than kind of happy sarcastic humor. Yeah, he gets uh, he gets more and more bitter. I think bitter, as he yeah, ages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the world is changing around him, and he's not particularly happy with the way it's changing. It seems women are driving. You know, <laughs> I have to pay taxes. So. <laughs> All of the things I like the least are happening to me now, and I, you know, and as as an older gentleman myself now, I find I find that also um, something that irks me. Obviously, I'm yeah. perfectly happy to have women driving, but certainly the world tends to become less a less attractive place the older you get. So, do you think this is more of a right wing leaning piece or a left wing leaning piece? Going back to our original thought for the series. That's- that's a really good question. Um, you know, on the face of it, it would be a right, a right-leaning piece, but really, it's not. I mean, I think it's more. It's a, it's, it's a kind of curmudgeonly, a sort of curmudgeonly. How do you curmudgeon, curmudgeon person? I can't, I can't, I can't organize that word properly. Um, it's, it's, it's just someone who's irritated by things. Um, it's neither left nor right. It, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not coherent enough to sort of, and it's not putting forward another point of view. Um, it's not kind of sort of Randian libertarianism. Um, you know, it's not kind of, you know, say, if only everything was privatized, like it will be if we right. voted Margaret Thatcher and everything would be fine. Um, mm-hmm. It's more like, ugh, this is all horrible now and I don't like it and I wish it would stop. And why aren't things like they used to be? Um, it's it's that kind of criticism. Yeah, I see it more as, as pox on both your houses. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you're- Which- you're all wrong, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to offer anything better. No, because I've got nothing better to add, well, other than the fact that you're all you're all crap and you should be sacked <laughs> and um, just leave me alone. That's that's right. the only thing it has to offer, basically. So, so I think this is this piece, this this story is more Bob Holmes than anything that he's written previously and maybe since. This is really catching the inner Bob Holmes, perhaps? I, I, I think it's obviously it's a tragedy that Bob Holmes is not, no longer with us, and it's a tragedy that I think he died so relatively young so that we don't have the kind of scholarship or involvement of, 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 of his involvement in the kind of Doctor Who scholarship that we we rejoice so much in, in nowadays. So I think it's quite hard to kind of really ascertain 
what Bob Holmes was like and what he felt about things. But yes, I think as much as we know about Bob Holmes, this is very, very Bob Holmes. Um, and he does introduce, a, uh, I think, an interesting bit of Time Lord or uh, understanding of Gallifreyan society in, in the company records of the Usarians were the Time Lords, oligarchic rulers of the planet Gallifrey, which seems to me to imply that the Time Lords... The Time Lord Society is the ruling class, and all Gallifreyans are not Time Lords. Which we will pick up on later on, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At, At the, the end, end of the, se end of the season. End of the season. Yeah. But I think, it, I think it builds upon his uh, Deadly Assassin yep. script yep. right there. Of his, It furthers the reworking of the Time Lords into this elite ruling class that the Doctor left. Yeah, which again, you know, feeds into, uh, you know, our, our previous comments. Is this a right-wing satire or a left-wing satire? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's neither, really, because, again, you know, it's, it's very clear that Bob Holmes dislikes the ruling class as much as he dislikes the working class. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and if, the, if, we, if you see the, you know, the Time Lords, they're a satire for, you know, the, uh, the upper class of, of Britain, you know, the ruling class of Britain, the House of Lords. Um, right. you know, the monarchy, um, you know, parliament in general. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he's, as I said, you know, this, this is not a particularly angled satire other than, you know, this is all, this is all crap. Um, lashing out at everyone. Lashing out at everybody, exactly. Yeah, he has, exactly. has like the collector say, the vicious doctrine of egalitarianism. Yeah. And then he has the doctor going, uh, commercial imperialism is as bad as military conquests. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I think even just, uh, you know, at the, at the time when I was a kid, the, the kind of description of the history of where mankind has gotten to, um, and, you know, has ended up on Pluto, mm -hmm. which is all, you know, part of that satire, irritated me at the time because, of course, I was trying to, mentally as a young fan, was trying to, you know, establish, you know, what is the continuity of Doctor Who and, and you know, Ark in Space and et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, and, you know, the Space Empire and, you mm -hmm. know, um, the, the frontier in space. This didn't really fit to me with what I understood was the was the historical continuity of the human race. Right. Um, and that kind of irritated me. But then, of course, as we understand, this isn't really part of that continuity, if there, if there, if there, if there even is one. Um, mm -hmm. This is part of the satire that, you know, we keep on mortgaging and selling our planet Right. Um, and having to move from planet to planet to planet because, you know, in Douglas Adams style, you know, we're just really crap as a as a as a species um, mm -hmm. and really can't get it together. It's funny that you mentioned Ark in Space because those uh, inside the safe <laughs> has the Ark in Space uh, a cube wall that they had for mm. the animal botanic section. Mm -hmm. So it's a reusing the sets. Reusing those and sets, exactly. I, it it's, yeah. it yeah. picks up on the theme kind of in the Ark and Space. What is the ultimate fate of humanity? And Ark and Space is a little more, we go into hibernation here in the, the next Bob Holmes story that deals with the future uh, humanity has mortgaged themselves out because they're yeah. <laughs> inept at living. Yes, exactly. And inept at surviving. Yeah, and then that, you know, in Ark in Space, you know, that there's that, you know, the famous indomitable speech that the Doctor mm -hmm. gives, you know, the fate of humanity is, you know, it's kind of transcendent right. and in some ways hopeful. Here, the fate of humanity, you said, is just, you know, it's to, it's, a, it's a lower middle class mortgage. Um, servitude. You know, servitude, you know, you, 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 your credit card doesn't work. You know, the whole thing is just, yeah, the whole thing is screwed, basically. Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting arc 
for Bob Holmes to have. <laughs> well, it's a start of script editing to the end of script the, editing. The beginning of being a script editor to the end of being a script editor. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, well, it all praise the company. The BBC wore them out. <laughs> so did, do, do we know whether, have, have the Usurians ever returned in any meaningful manner? I'm going to look on the internet and see what they okay. say. I didn't check on that. Um, I think I think they're great, and I, mm-hmm. I'd be very pleased to have them back. But maybe... Maybe they haven't. Why haven't Big Finish done something about the Usurians? You would think that a poisonous fungi, seaweed, kelp-type creature would have a lot of appeal, even in New Who. Exactly. That could be totally realized now. Yeah, I mean, why weren't they behind, you know, why weren't they on Satellite 5, whatever it was called, <laughs> with Simon yeah, Pegg? You know? that's, a good, that's a very good point. That You could you could see Simon Pegg being a Usarian. They're totally adaptable, yeah. <laughs> um, so, come on, Big Finish. Let's have a Usurian show, um, if you're listening. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. they probably already have one. Their back catalog is so vast. That That's, yeah, who knows anymore, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting, I thought. The writing. It's a classic Bob Holmes writing. A lot of good scenes. You had mentioned in the Ark in Space, the indomitable speech. Yeah. I thought... Bob gave Louise Jameson a really good line when she is trying to motivate the people in the Undercity Mandrills people to go out and fight. And she really, I don't think we've ever, ever had uh, before or since a female companion belittling <laughs> anyone's manhood. But she goes, Leela, you go straight for it. You have nothing, Mandrill. No pride, no courage, no manhood. No manhood. Wow, that's 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 those are those are tough words from Lita. But you know, she's the one. She's uh-huh. um she's really uh she was named after like wasn't she? Hang on, a terrorist. Yeah, uh, after a terrorist. So she's she's going back to <laughs> her a naming roots fighter, there. Depending on which side of the uh, political spectrum you're on. Exactly. Who knows? Um, <laughs> oh, the other. Some of the details in this, I think, were um, really weird. They have pillows in the correction center for Tom Baker and Bisham to lie their head on. That's an odd detail. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stands out a little bit. Well, again, I mean, I think it's it's actually as a you know thinking about it in a satirical sense. I mean, it kind of work. You know, it works. That's yeah. the kind of dumb thing that you'd get in that kind of you know badly thought out detention center. Um, <laughs> Which it is basically. It's like you know, nineteen nineteen seventies detention center. It's like badly, <laughs> it's just, badly it just, realized. It's like the comfy chair. Of exactly. Python. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the chair of reasonable comfort. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, other lines where they're in the detention center where they put on the big helmet, and Bob Holmes gives uh, the line to the doctor something like, uh, "Don't leave it on too long; it goes all frizzy." And <laughs> There's a there's a lot of little lines. I, I think the script is a lot of fun to even just listen to. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then when you combine it with Louise Jameson's acting and yep. you watch her like when just early on when the doctor and Corridor are saying six sons, that, that there shouldn't be six sons. And you see Louise Jameson counting out six on her fi- <laughs> fingers and then immediately crossing her arms. You just kind of cover up the fact. I think that... Uh, like we mentioned earlier, Louise Jemison is just a brilliant actress, and this just shows she does so much when she is not doing her lines. She yep. does a lot with her acting, with her reactions. Yep. And just like when the doctor and K9 are playing chess, Leela is falling asleep at the beginning. 
But then when K9 announces that he has checkmate in what four or five moves, Leela yeah. just flashes a really winning smile towards the doctor. She's entirely on Team K9. Like you said, K9 is Leela's companion. Yeah. And they work really well together. When the K9 keeps going on, she kind of gives him a little nudge with her foot to shut up. So it uh, it really works. I think there's so much to watch with Louise Jemison's acting. And it's such a shame that she was going to be leaving the show, uh, spoilers, in two, in two stories. Two stories time, yeah. And she really, I mean, she knows she's really what, she's really examining the character and she's working mm-hmm. with the character and she knows what Leela is like. Um, right. Which is why, you know, I think it's, you know, spoiler alert, it's so distressing how the character leaves the show because, of course, mm-hmm. it's exactly what the character is not like. And, you know, and she's, and she's able to build in this, 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 it's very subtle. It's not, it's, she's not, you know, she's not Paul Darrow. Um, you know, she's not kind of <laughs> trying to take over the scene from over, over, over someone's right. shoulder. Um, this is all completely subtle stuff, but just, you know, just adds to the very malicitude. I got that one right. Um, <laughs> of the show, you know, and, and of, of the characters. She's, she's great. She's wonderful. Yep. We love Louise Jameson. Yep. Yep. Super lady. I can see why she likes the story. It gives her lots to work with. Yeah. Yep. Um, as for the character itself, how Bob Holmes treated Leela, not not a big fan. No. Well, again, you know, he's a said he's he's yeah. a he's a curmudgeonly old curmudgeon. Oh, okay, that word. Uh, he's a he's an old curmudgeon. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, as you said, we've we've traced his story arc from Ark and Space to Sunmakers. So you had mentioned that you had grown on the uh, performance of Richard Leach as as you've aged yep. is there anything i mean my favorite my favorite part of his thing is just all his uh, uh verisimilitudes or your uh, obsequiousness you know all yep. the yep. all the yep. uh Yep. All the weird praise, your monstrosity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the collector. But I think my favorite thing that he says at the very beginning yeah. is his mispronunciation of mahogany as mahogany. <laughs> <laughs> he's and great. Just, uh, he's just so pompous and over the top. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's, uh, he's a very uh, Lord High executioner, Mikado type character, very bombastic. Pompous. And I'm sure, you know, the kind of, you know, the kind of you know, mid to high-ish level functionaries, Oxbridge educated folks that, you know, Bob Holmes is having to deal with at the BBC. I'm, this was exactly the kind of people that he was having to spend time with mm-hmm. as a freelancer, you know, trying to get his check cut, <laughs> um, you know, from the finance department, um, right. for, you know, etc., etc. I'm sure this is the kind of person that he was dealing with. And the kind of person actually probably it still exists at the BBC. They're probably a lot more kind of Blairite and Thatcherite now in the way that they right. in the way that they address people, but yeah, it's the same kind of pompous asses who run that kind of organization. And I think a call out to the casting that Pennant Roberts did with the script. It is Pennant Roberts who cast Jonina Scott as Marne and Adrian right. Burgess as Veep. Both of those roles most likely or probably were written by Bob Holmes to be played by a male actor. Yep. But by casting a woman in the role, I think it adds yeah. depth and character to this otherwise, it, you know, it would have been Leela and a bunch of guys. And even a lot of the extras you, you see working are female so there's a mix of gender yep. in the story that i think adds to the depth it's just not the planet of the men yeah which is which of course you know bob holmes that's exactly what he i mean he you know he's again as the kind of old middle-aged man that he is um mm-hmm. it, you know the planet of the men is is the planet that you write for because you right. know women a eh? what you know 
What's that about? <laughs> Why are they driving? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> well, we see it in the power of Kroll, where you yeah. have an entire society, which is all uh, green-painted men. Yeah, green-painted men, exactly. It's like, why? Why have women? Um, and, of course, Pennant Roberts is, of course, one of our favorite Doctor Who directors, having directed yes. a lot of, of what we enjoy the most about Doctor Who. Um, mm-hmm. um, Casted Leela. Casted Leela, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, well done, him. Right. Any other thoughts on I the think Sunmakers? Th- I th- it's 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 one. It's a it's one for the grown-ups. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you it's, it actually you can watch it quite a lot as a as an adult and really really enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. As as a kid, not so much. Um, right. And I think as I as I've said, and I will say again, probably next week and the week after. You know, that's sort of true of of the rest of this season actually is that is that I enjoy the next two stories Underworld and The Invasion of Time far more as a as an adult than I than I than I did as a kid. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Right. Okay. Well thank you for listening to episode fifty nine of the Metabulous Two podcast. I've been talking to Ben. And I have been talking to David. All praise the company. Praise the company. Your Forever and ever your Portland <laughs> Um, uh, yeah goodbye everyone see ya bye Metabulous 2 Podcast. We've been in mission a hundred thousand years, Doctor. The ship wasn't designed for that. Neither were we. Each one of us is regenerated a thousand times. A thousand times plus, Doctor. None of us wants to go on, but we must. The quest is the quest. But now we're like the ship, regenerating faster than we can regenerate ourselves. Not the body, not the mind, not the spirit. Ben and David flash back to Underworld. <laughs> <laughs> Ha 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 